Welcome to Side Talks. I'm Corey Kraft. I am a programmer for the Sidewalk Film Festival and upcoming Film Center and Cinema. And I am Rachel Morgan. I, I, maybe I start using my middle name. I'm Rachel Ashley Morgan. No, I don't like it. <laughs> I'm Rachel Morgan. I'm the creative director for the Sidewalk Film Festival and Cinema. What is this podcast anyway, Corey? Uh, this is a one-stop shop for all things cinema uh, as we approach not only the opening of our own dedicated space, but this year's Sidewalk Film Festival. Tune in to hear you and I bicker, discuss, argue, and just downright get silly with everything uh, that has to do with motion pictures. Party. Get ready for a five-minute fight. Five-minute. Round one. Fight. So guess what it is time for? Right out of the gate. Right out of the gate. Five-minute fight. Five-minute fight. So um, I think it kind of keeps the energy up just to start with us. So we're going to keep trying to uh, maybe start with the five-minute fight. I wonder if people will like that. I don't know. But we're going to do it. All right. Ready? Let's do it. Start that clock now. And what are we fighting about today? Let's start with Quentin Tarantino, the uh, notorious filmmaker of um, a lot of the most famous and beloved American crime, comedy, drama, thriller hybrids of the 1990s. He has continued that career into uh, the modern day sometimes more successfully uh, than other times. He has always been dogged by controversy. Um, <laughs> not by uh, many accounts necessarily a dude you'd want to be friends with, but who wants to be friends with their favorite filmmakers anyway? I'm going to argue in favor of Quentin Tarantino as a vital American auteur, the contemporary equivalent to Jean-Luc Godard in his synthesis of his many inspirations into a new sort of cinematic style that is uniquely him. And if your rebuttal is, he's a dick, yeah, he's a dick. What else you got? What's the point of even arguing here when you're just going to play me? You're just going <laughs> to So here's the thing. I know I'm going to lose this argument. Let me get that out of the way. Okay. Sam, go ahead. I know, I know, I know. I know I'm going to lose it. I'm not totally anti-Quentin, but I will happily play the I don't like Quentin Tarantino card here. Plus, I have gotten one big note on the podcast, and that is that I'm a bitch. What? So I am happy to be a bitch, especially when it comes to Mr. Tarantino. So here's my point. Pulp Fiction doesn't stand the test of time. Was it innovative? Yes. Did I enjoy it at the time? Yes. Did my friend, who was also in film school at that time, turn to me and say, man, he started a whole new genre? Yes, that all happened. It is a great film in the canon, but it is not a film that has stood the test of time. You can reduce everything about that film to the $5 milkshake. It doesn't hold up. Okay, Pulp Fiction is not my favorite of his films. I'm not I sure win. that I... Well, how do you win? I'm not sure that I agree <laughs> that it doesn't hold up. It's not my favorite of his films. I still think it's uh, wonderfully energetic. I think it's a good time. I think that as he deepened and matured as a filmmaker, he made better movies. I think Jackie Brown is a better movie. Good movie. I'm going to give you Jackie Brown. I think I Glorious Bastards fr- is a better movie. Nah, I'm going to take from you Django Unchained. I'm taking that from you because it's not good. I love it. <sighs> I love, I love. Well, okay. It's I'm, tedious. I'm on the Tarantino train, which is admittedly like a total white dude with a beard thing to say. I'll admit it. Uh, but I like every one of his films. I think every one of I them? I like every one of his films. Um, wow. I think that they all have something to offer. I think that they are all unique and interesting looks uh, admittedly, in the last few years, at history through this sort of samurai slash spaghetti western lens. He's overrated. I like 
a lot of the films. Jackie Brown certainly being my favorite. I think he he clearly, and, and I think he would admit this, he borrows a lot. It's a little bit of like collage filmmaking. Yeah. Probably at its best, do not get me wrong. Certainly innovative um, guy, but not a genius. And people hold him up. And part of it is this really obnoxious personality. So it is on the table to discuss because he inserts himself into his own films, which is, by the way, the weakest part of his Usually. films is when we see his ass. Yeah. And so I would say, too, that unlike somebody like Scorsese, who will like leave a camera bump in and show the mistake, right, in, in, in a film like Casino, I believe mm-hmm. it is, we've got Tarantino like ruining his own films by putting his stupid face in, in them. I don't think ruining is, is exactly mm. the case. I think his, his scene in Pulp Fiction is, is one of the weaker scenes in the movie, but I wouldn't say that it's ruined, and I think he compensates for that with a lot of that Scorsese-like bravado. Is Scorsese a better filmmaker? Of course Scorsese is a better filmmaker. Uh, but I think Tarantino has a lot to offer in the cinematic landscape. I think that it would look far blander, far less interesting, far less in touch with cinematic history, and not just like the canon, but B-movie garbage that he you know, so uh, reveres. I, the contemporary cinematic landscape would be far less interesting without him in it. Okay. I mean, I'm not going to argue that, but I am going to argue that the films are self-indulgent, that they're they're sort of pandering and sometimes pandering to his own self, that they often don't hold the test of time, that they meander a lot, that they aren't super efficient, that most of them run about 25 minutes too long. They're hangout movies. I, I uh, find pleasure in uh. that. I find pleasure in hanging out with Do his characters. Do we need that? Why can't we make an efficient film and start by cutting We have your... plenty of people who make efficient films. Okay. Let him make his hangout movies and, and let, let's hang out with those crazy characters. That's the, that's the pull quote. A hangout movie for the century. What? Oh, man, it's over and I know I lost, but let me say this. I may be a bitch, but you're right. Quentin Tarantino's a dick. <laughs> wow. Sam. Okay, so, yeah, Rachel already knows she lost that one pretty hard. That was a crash and burn. It was difficult to watch from back there. I think Corey gets, like, 500,000 points for that improvised film essay at the beginning. That was just straight from the heart and pure and good. Um, Yeah, so Corey wins. They're hangout movies for sure. They're just overall enjoyable, but you can still look into them further and get something out of it. Um, But at the same time, enjoyable on the surface level. And we have other films that are efficient, and we have Tarantino films, and why can't we have both? And we're, we have films made by filmmakers that aren't complete pricks with weird foot fetishes that they show on screen, and we have other films. Like, so why can't we just have both, you know? But Rachel gets probably 100 points for saying his cameos are the weakest part in, in his films. His Australian accent in Django Unchained almost ruins the movie completely. Yeah, his Australian accent in Django is just awful. Um, Tarantino's personality is obnoxious, but his films aren't in a way. Um, And I just, it's completely false that Pulp Fiction doesn't stand the test of time. It does. You can watch it in like 100 years from now, and people will still be like, that's a great film. I bet the guy was a prick, though, but it's a great film. That's it. (laughs) And now, a look at what we're watching this week. Well, Corey, what have you been watching? Well, Rachel, I've been watching a bunch of sidewalk submissions, which we can't really talk about. Rest assured that bummer things are in motion. We're making plans. But uh, I want to talk about two movies that I've watched fairly recently. 
both extremely different, but both with female leads, which is ironic because of what we just recorded. The first I'd like to talk about is uh, considering everything that's going on in the state of Alabama right now. I went back and watched a 2007 film called Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, a Romanian film from director Christian Mungiu. Right. Uh, it won the Palme d'Or in 2007. Uh, it is a film set during um, the Romanian dictatorship of the 1980s, and it follows two young women uh, who are trying to procure an illegal abortion for one of them from a very sleazy sort of back alley uh, practitioner. And you were sparked to watch this because of what's going on in Alabama. Yes. So you, you sought this out. Uh, it's a film that I had been wanting to see for a long time. Gotcha. Um, but of course, recent events sort of made it, it, it moved it to the top you, of my you. list. Sure. Uh, this is an incredible movie. I don't know if you've seen this, but it I is. I have not. I have not. Uh, it is brilliant. It is uh, a thriller that moves uh, in very slow but sort of painstaking scenes through uh, how this dictatorship and the lack of freedoms, the lack of choice that are, is being forced upon these women makes the just even the the barest day to day, you know, getting food, getting um, beauty supplies, getting right. anything uh, just extremely difficult. It is uncompromising. It is um, a heavy movie, needless to say. But um, I mean, one, you said Romania, right? Right. So, well, there you go. One that sort of makes the viewer completely unable to turn away from the reality of an oppressive government regime um, when various freedoms have been stripped from its citizens. So gotcha. definitely worth checking out. Just because of the filmmaking on display, if nothing else, because it is a brilliantly made movie. But also relevant. But also incredibly relevant. The other film that I watched with female leads is about as far away from that as you can get. Uh, yeah. I think you know where I'm going with this. I saw Olivia Wilde's Booksmart okay. in theaters. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. A wonderful movie. I like it. A really, really good, hilarious comedy starring uh, Beanie Feldstein, uh, who... Viewers may remember from Lady Bird, she's Jonah Hill's little sister, which is right. ironic considering the um, comparisons this movie is getting to Superbad. And uh, Caitlin Deaver, who you may remember from, I think, season two of Justified and Short Term 12. She's really great in that. Um, these two are sort of know-it-all high schoolers on the verge of graduation who realize they're about to go to Ivy League colleges and they haven't partied one bit. So they right. go all out the night before graduation and live it up. And it is really, really funny, really sweet, uh, really stylishly directed from Olivia Wilde. Uh, this is her feature debut. She's better known as an actress. Sure. But, but I think she nailed it. Um, yeah. And, you know, this movie is very, very funny. But where it really, really got me, like really captured me, is when these girls, about two-thirds of the way through the movie, finally get to the party they've been trying to get to. And there is just one scene after another that is, it not only keeps up the high joke ratio, but but really sort of captured my heart at yeah. the, the moment. It really yeah. gets sweet. And, um, and like, that's a thing that's thrown out to comedies all the time. It's funny, but, you know, it's sweet, too. But, I mean, this, this really deserves that. It's a really great movie that's kind of underperforming at the box office. And if, if you're even kind of on the fence about seeing it, I, it gets my unqualified recommendation. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I, I too, saw this in the theater, 
I would say that even if you aren't interested in seeing it, I would go see it. Let's support this film. It's about time we have a film directed by a woman that is, you know, this type of film Mm -hmm. that has a strong female cast. It's not just about romantic interest. That is certainly part of it, but not traditionally. Right. Um, And so it's it's a great film to to support. And so I will say that what I'm watching similarly – this is going to be a little wordy and a little rambly and a little like sort of ill prepared. But uh, I also saw Booksmart. And mm-hmm. so it got me thinking about many, many things, including um, and you're not going to be able to follow my logic here. I get it. But it's OK. Twilight. I've uh-huh. been thinking about Twilight because we're doing that for the book and film series um, in September In September. And so it got me thinking about that, which then caused me to rewatch Personal Shopper. A great um, movie. Yeah, which is a great film. And so those are the kind of things that I've been thinking about. And then that is sort of also there's a big umbrella over that where I've watched a film that relates to the film Showgirls. Mm-hmm. And that's all kind of mixed in. And so what I've been thinking a lot about with this film Booksmart and why it's not doing as well as it could. Not that it's not that this is I mean, there are plenty of great films out there sure. that are underperforming. And this is this is, you know, and, and performing way less than Booksmart is. I mean, we're talking about it. Right. So. I mean, there, you know, it's not the only one, but it is a mainstream film built by a mainstream actress who certainly has all of the connections and a cast and the budget to pull this thing off. And it's just not doing as well as it should. Mm-hmm. And it all, it sort of led me to think about this. I've been getting a little bit of, um, I don't want to call it criticism. I'm going to call it eye roll about programming the film Twilight in our book and film club series. It's, it's definitely one of the sort of lighter films that we'll watch. It's one that, um, is sort of looked down upon probably more than the others. And, yeah. it, and it really interests me to kind of go down this road because the first Twilight, okay, is directed by a woman, right? Right. And um, does really well at the box office, much different than Booksmart. I mean, I think everybody – I think part of what's going on with Booksmart is everybody expected it to sort of blow doors, and it, it's done okay. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I think it's done worse than okay. But Okay. But yeah. I got I see you. what you're saying. And so, but Twilight comes in, and, and while it's based on a huge bestseller, I think there were sort of low expectations, and it, and it, it blew people's faces off in, in terms of box office money, right? right. So then they decide, and, and the director has been very, very outspoken about this. And am I saying this right? It's Catherine Hardwick? Catherine Hardwick directed the first one. Um, and so she's been very outspoken to say they pulled her off of the series after this first one because she's at the helm for a ton of success for this film it has a big hand in casting Kristen Stewart's been outspoken about that she's you know sort of very very much part of the process of casting these two folks who um, clearly had entire you know they had careers before but this launched them into superstardom whether they liked it or not and um, and so they remove her from the film in the following sequels because they felt like a woman couldn't direct action right and I am so baffled by that. It's really made me think, too, of something like sort of beginning to be forced to think about showgirls in a way that does it demand or, you know, is it worthy of kind of critical thought? I'm not sure. But but being forced to kind of go there, right? I'm thinking about, you know, the, the lead actress in that film and what happened to her career after that. Not that I think that she had a very strong one before, but still, I think that men tend to be able to go and do work that is really critically panned and can still kind of dust themselves off and move on. And yet women don't seem to have the same ability to do that. Oh, for sure. We see that documented throughout the entirety of the 90s. Um, Penelope Spheris is a great example of that. Uh, Another, the fact that I'm blanking on 
another female director's name who comes to mind should tell you enough there exactly. You get one shot if yeah. you're a, if you're a female director. Um, I think that's changing a little bit, right? But maybe not as much as it should be. Maybe not as quickly as it should be. Yeah. Um, and I think that's also true, uh, as you mentioned, alluding to Elizabeth Berkeley of Showgirls, for a lot of young actresses. Um, you know, obviously, Showgirls comes with uh, a lot more baggage uh, than a lot of other movies. <laughs> right. You know, if if Elizabeth Berkeley had taken a shot in a, like a romantic comedy and it didn't really pan out, she probably would have gotten another shot or two. But but there is that sort of uh, tendency in Hollywood. Uh, I'd say even still, though, I, I'd like to think it's getting a little better of uh, women being excluded from a lot of these major decision-making processes and certainly from having seats at the table creatively. Right. And and I would argue, too, that while Twilight isn't, I'm not going to put that in the canon. I'm not going to say that's a great film. No, I don't think it's a good movie at all. I, I mean, we can put that in Five Minute Fight later. Sure. I do find it to be very enjoyable, and I think a lot of people would agree with that. Yeah. But I also think that it's just as bad as any number of other films that aren't quite as, you know, they're not fodder for for laughter or an eye roll like this one is. Yeah, male critics see it's a girl movie. So, it you know, it's got a big target painted on it. And, yeah, it's ridiculous. I don't like Twilight. You know, we'll we'll talk about that, I'm sure. Yeah, that's the next five-minute fight, y'all. I don't don't think it's it's good. I don't think any of those movies are particularly good. Uh, But I don't think that they are unusually bad i don't think that they are bad in ways that movies geared towards men are not bad i mean they're bad in the same old way that any old bad movie is and and for them to have been sort of pilloried to such a degree like this this is the thing that is wrong like no you just say that because it's not for you i mean movies don't have to be for you right and I mean, you know, again, we'll counter this conversation for Book Film Club and also for further discussion later. But, um, you know, I didn't ever expect to bring this topic up and kind of have a question answered. I just, this is what I've been watching yeah. and this is what I've been pondering. And it's an interesting road to go down. Well, I totally think that, that Twilight is worthy of critical discussion I, because of what it has, it has inspired, because of all the conversations around it. The careers it's launched. Sure. I mean, there's there's so much to talk about with those movies. I mean, subtextually. Uh, right. Is it Mormon rich. propaganda? Is it not? Is it feminist? Is it anti-feminist? Lots of lots of stuff to get out. They're sure. bonkers. The, these these as texts are like truly, truly interesting. Now, right. that doesn't mean I ever want to watch it again. Well, you're going to <laughs> well, probably. But uh, I, I think they're very, very worthy of discussion. So so come sign up for our book and film right. club, I guess, is the, the end of that statement. Discussion countered. So now it's time for Cal's Corner. Cal McKinnon is a features programmer for the Sidewalk Film Festival and Cinema. He's going to take a few minutes to talk about whatever the heck he wants to. Hey, everybody. Um, It's me. I'm on vacation. I've had a wonderful time hiking in Utah. um, But now I'm in the Las Vegas Strip, not having quite as good a time. I do really like Las Vegas, but the Strip is just kind of like a nightmare Disney World where everything is, is, is very, very expensive and not my cup of tea. Anyways, I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to tell you about weird times I've cried in movies. Um, really just, I have two examples for you that come to mind because one happened while packing my bags this morning, but the other uh, I'll start with uh, goes back to when um, 
But when I went to see the movie Contact, the Robert Zemeckis movie starring Jodie Foster, uh, which came out when I was in high school, and um, and I remember uh, sitting back, watching the movie, really enjoying it, and uh, it was about how a, a scientist uh, receives messages from aliens, and uh, it's basically our first contact with aliens, and um, NASA and them figure out a way to launch an astronaut to a whole nother star system and it involves this gigantic gyroscope looking uh, tower and it becomes basically the biggest news in the world it's the biggest news or it's the biggest event in human history really that we're about to travel so many so many light years away and uh, and so I'm enjoying it it's really exciting and then all of a sudden uh, Gary Busey's son Jake Busey who is a uh, a religious terrorist, he blows up the structure. He had planted bombs in it. And then you see him quickly on the surveillance camera, and they spot him, and he pulls out a detonating device. And then it blows the whole gyroscope tower thing up in a beautiful, beautiful mess. And I just started bawling. Not like, I mean, I just had just tears rushing down my face but I was really smiling really hard I don't know what it says about me but I think it was just that someone would have the the uh I don't know would have such conviction to uh take a piss on basically the most wonderful moment in human history and then to you know just completely destroy it and uh, I don't know that that spoke to me on some level, but man, it was. I remember thinking how strange it was that I was like involuntarily crying, but it also was just a. It was a rush. It felt really great. So that was the first one, and so I was reminded of that uh, this morning when I had just finished making breakfast and eating breakfast. I was watching uh, the Quentin Tarantino movie. Death Proof, the director's cut, which, by the way, is very underrated. It was that movie that came out packaged with uh, Robert Rodriguez's Planet Terror as part of the whole Grindhouse movie, um, which kind of flopped. But I really like Death Proof. Um, it's, it's, its first half is just a wonderful Texas hangout movie. And uh, it has really, really wonderful, just wonderful dialogue and good suspenseful build-up. Stuntman Mike, played by Kurt Russell, is an awesome, somewhat likable, somewhat laughable serial killer who kills, uh, kills stalks women and kills them in his uh, unbreakable car. And anyway, so um, spoiler alert, but uh, the end of the movie has a group of women who are um, actors and stunt people and stunt drivers they get mixed up with stuntman Mike they he, they become his targets and they fight back with a vengeance on the road and they shoot him drawing blood from his arm and he becomes completely emasculated they completely trash his car when they sideswipe him when he's coming down a ramp and then they kick the ever-living crap out of him, which is the film's big conclusion. Uh, it's very, like, cartoony and comical and has really, really uh, um, uh, big, like, uh, big, big music. It's like a big release. 
And I think it was sometime during when he's getting the his lights knocked out, I just realized I was getting like really emotional. Uh, maybe it was just uh, it was like that kind of feeling when people apparently like people when they saw Rocky in theaters would like stand up and pretend they're punching when he started um, kind of making a comeback. I don't know what it was, but so I was in a room with a few of my friends, and right when the movie ended, I just kind of quietly walked away, closed the door to the room I was, uh, I'd been staying in, and I just started crying pretty darn hard. Uh, it, was, it was a cathartic moment. It felt great. It wasn't a sad moment, and, but it was a confusing moment. Um, I, I don't really like, like, like the contact thing. I don't really know what that says about me, but um, it is, maybe it's not necessarily sad movies that make me cry, but ones where, um, I don't know, where people get obliterated, beaten up. I don't know. Anyway, uh, that's, that's my contribution this week. <laughs> I hope you'd enjoyed it. This is Kyle McKinnon, and you've been listening to Weird Times I've Cried in Movies. Kyle McKinnon is a feature film programmer for the Sidewalk Film Center and Cinema. So I'm sitting in studio today with Stacy Davis. Uh, Stacy is an entertainment lawyer, a filmmaker herself, and the president of the board at Sidewalk. Thanks for joining us, Stacy, here in studio today. Yeah, thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, um... For our listeners who might be unfamiliar, what what exactly does an entertainment lawyer specialize in? What are some of the duties that you have uh, in that role? Entertainment law is really um, the practice of several different legal specialties, corporate, securities, tax, business planning, intellectual property, and it's just geared towards the entertainment industry. So typically, entertainment lawyers will represent clients in the film, television, book publishing, sports, music areas of the entertainment sector. Um, and they're practicing across all of those different practice areas. Sure. So why would a filmmaker need to enlist the services of an entertainment attorney when they're starting out? Because uh, they don't want to go to jail. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Because um, they want to distribute their film and they want to make sure that at the end of the day, once they've made this wonderful film and it's had a great festival run and they have offers for distribution, that they're able to provide things um, that are going to be required by the distributor and by the errors and emissions insurance provider, like clear chain of title, um, various cast and crew contracts, location agreements. So at the very end of the process, once you begin to distribute, all of these sort of legal documents become due. But it's so much easier um, to start at the beginning and to get do it before you know you get to the end of the train and you don't have it all done. So preparation is key. So day one, film shoot, a filmmaker says, we're, we're going to start. Um, what sort of things do they have to have in line? Uh, well, hopefully they've come to me before day one well, of principal okay, photography. Sure <laughs> uh, day I like one to, of pre-production. Yeah, yeah. I like to get involved as early in the process as possible. And that's typically in early on in the development stage. This is when you're acquiring the intellectual property upon which the film is going to be based. Whether you're hiring a writer to prepare a script um, or you are purchasing or securing an option on a book so you can then hire a writer to prepare the screenplay. 
um, you want to get the lawyer involved as early as possible. And then once sort of the intellectual property is at play or secured, generally you move into the finance aspect of of what I do, which is helping to secure the money, which is always, as you can imagine, the hardest part. Um, So you have all sorts of different financing agreements, and there's a hundred different ways that you can raise money for a film, everything from as simple as putting it on your credit card, if you, if that's simple for you, um, to very complex financing arrangements with equity investors or uh, debt providers. So it really runs the gamut, and I try to assist my clients with those documents needed along the way. So you have experience working from the smallest of sort of indie productions to some of the larger productions. Could you talk a little bit about those differences and and what you've seen? Yeah, I mean, I think um, one of the things I think clients who are starting out in the film industry don't understand is that whether you are shooting a $5,000 short film or a $50 million blockbuster, a lot of the same agreements are at play, right? You need to have a written agreement with your actors, with your crew. Anytime you shoot on private property, you need to have a location agreement with the owner of the of the property. So again, it doesn't matter what the size of the budget is for those legal issues to come into play. Now, are there additional complexities involved when you're shooting a 10, 20, $50 million feature? Of course. Um, but sort of the basic legal principles that come into application, it doesn't matter the size of the film. It can be doc, it can be narrative, it can be short, it can be feature. It's It all comes into play. So this, this just entails sort of dotting all of your I's and crossing all of your T's, legally speaking, as to what you have permission to, to show. Um, what would happen if a filmmaker dropped the ball in one of these areas? Well, that's definitely happened. And it's um, really sad for my clients. You know, I've represented a client before who had a fantastic uh, documentary feature. It had all of this wonderful music in it. It was great. It got picked up for distribution. And guess what? They hadn't secured a single music license. So they went back and they went to go get all of these wonderful songs that they included, like Nine Inch Nails and all, you know, top top hits and they were too expensive and they couldn't afford them. So they had to completely redo all of the music in the film. And guess what? The distributor didn't like it and they passed. Mm. So there can be some really dire consequences if you don't have your legal ducks in a row from the beginning, or at least as you move throughout the process. Sure. So if you had to offer sort of, and you may have already answered this question, just one blanket piece of advice for filmmakers starting this path, what would it, what would it be? Um, I think it would be to think of a lawyer, think of your entertainment lawyer like any other member of the crew, right? You would never shoot a film without a DP or a director. You would never shoot a film without a writer because you wouldn't have a script. Sure. You would never, I mean, you shouldn't shoot a film unless you have confident like G&E folks, right? So the lawyer's the same thing. I mean, we provide a valuable um you know, service. We provide a, we're part, I think, of an important piece of the puzzle. Um, So you shouldn't forget about us. And you should definitely try to involve us as early as possible in the process, because we can only help you and make your life easier. Sure. So you yourself have um, uh, worked on film sets from a creative capacity. Um, We programmed a short film, I think, that you wrote a couple years back. Um, What sort of drew you to that side of the industry? Actually, that was probably preceded my interest in, in entertainment law. Okay. Um, I had been writing, you know, just kind of messing around since 
since high school with Scripps and then sort of got serious about 10 years ago um, and and really trying to, you know, hone the craft. And as you mentioned, I wrote a short film that was programmed at Sidewalk uh, and just have really fallen in love with the creative process. So since then, I've produced a few more and have written an, another short um, that I hope to be on the festival circuit this year. Uh, I directed my first short doc. Okay. So I... I really enjoy the creative aspect. And I think that makes me a better entertainment lawyer because I understand what the filmmaker is going through. I understand that they have a tight budget and they can't afford maybe all of my legal services. So how am I going to be creative and what I can provide to make sure that they have the bare essential, um, but that it still works within their budget and works with their creative that they're trying to put on the screen? Well, that was my follow-up question. You know, how, how do the two sort of inform one another? It sounds like well, it gives you a nice perspective. I think uh, so. You're the president of the board uh, of Sidewalk at a moment where there's a lot going on. <laughs> there's, um, I hadn't heard. Yeah. What's up? What's the latest? <laughs> well, uh, you probably know better than me. <laughs> um, what drew you to Sidewalk uh, and what drew you to take part in, in sort of the organizational side of it? So I moved to Birmingham in 2002 and really didn't know anybody. Um, and this thing happened in September called the Sidewalk Film Festival. And I went and I said, wow, this is amazing. These are, these are, you know, my people. And I started volunteering, I think, just a few months after that. 2003 was my first festival. And by December of 2003, they asked me to be on the board. And I really haven't left since. Y'all can't get rid of me. <laughs> And and so um, as president of the board, you work very closely with uh, with Chloe, um, especially now that we've geared up the film uh, center and cinema project. I'd say geared up. It's nearing completion at the time of this recording. Uh, knock on wood. Um, what sort of. Um, uh, I guess we'll have to speak kind of obliquely here, but how has that process been? Um, what sort of challenges have arisen? How has that gone sort of? Uh, well, the so process far? has been long and the challenges have been many, right. um, but the rewards are going to be through the roof, right? So yeah. it's all worth it. It's been, for some folks, I think it's been, you know, 20 plus years in, in the making. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't know that a, a cinema was the initial idea behind Sidewalk before it became a festival. Um, so for a lot of people, this has been on the forefront of their minds for, for a long time. Um, but it has been a long time coming. And I think whenever you go out and try to take on a project like this and raise $4.9 million in the community, I mean, it's, it's going to be a challenge, right? And we knew that. And we tried to prepare as best we could. And there were um, some obstacles thrown in our path. And we've done our darndest to try to, you know, beat those back and, and persevere. And I think we have. And I could not be more excited for what's coming in the in the next few months. Once the cinema's up and running again in the next few months, knock on wood, um, what do you see is, is sort of the general future of the organization? Well, I think that we continue to be a shining star in the state of Alabama. I think that we, I hope that we continue to do our part to train uh, the next generation of filmmakers mm -hmm. in the state. I hope that we continue to entertain and educate folks um, throughout the state who come to our festival and see amazingly um, curated content. Um, and I hope that we continue doing what we're doing, which is really being, you know, one of the best regional film festivals in the country. 
Yeah. If not the best. I'd say the best. I'd say the best, too. No need to be nice. Yeah, no. No. This is our podcast. We (laughs) We are the best. We are the best. Um, Unquestionably. Uh, To bring it back sort of full circle, then, you know, you've worked with a lot of the productions that have come into the Birmingham area, into the Alabama area over the past few years. What is the state of filmmaking in Alabama? And, And where do you see that going? Well, I mean, first of all, I think that Sidewalk deserves a lot of credit for for where the industry is at right now. And I don't necessarily think that um, it gets that credit, but I'm going to go ahead and pat us on the back for it. Um, Because I think it's things like, it's not just the festival, but I think it's things like the year-round content that we started to provide many, many years ago, the tech and technique, the the salons that allowed the networking community, and I mean the filmmaking community to really network and get together and create, you know, what is now the industry. And then we've also seen some great productions come in from out of state and and use our our resources and our crew and and create great films. Um, I think the incentives have helped tremendously. So, you know, overall, I think the industry is an upswing, I think, because we're so close to Georgia. Um, We have naturally received some additional attention um, that we may not otherwise. And I just hope that continues. I think certainly through the Sidewalk Film Center and cinema, we are going to see an increase in the classes and workshops and offerings that we're going to be able to provide to the local filmmaking community. So I think, you know, there's only great things ahead. All right. Well, that's a good note to end on, I think. Thank you, Stacy, for joining us. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. And now, Fast Film Terms. It's time for Fast Film Terms. Fast Film Terms. Throw them at me. Say it really fast. Fast Film Terms. Do you know what an apple crate is? (laughs) A crate in which apples are stored. No, I don't. I mean, at one point in time, that was probably the case back in the olden days. Uh, but no, an apple crate or an apple box is like there's these little like sort of wooden boxes that are on the on a film set and they're used for various things. But one of the things they're used for is when you have somebody super short like Thomas Cruise. That's what I was about to. That was the joke I was going to make. Damn, I stole it from you. Yeah, that's there okay. are never enough Thomas Cruise jokes. Anyway, there, there you put his little ass on an apple crate so that he can be the same <laughs> height as the beautiful Nicole Kidman. Or uh, actually, that still wouldn't. You'd have to get like 10 apple crates to yeah, make him. A height. He's a he's a wee little man. Yes, but that's what an apple crate does interesting okay and so let's do one more since that one was pretty fast okay fast film terms fast film terms i thought this would be good what in the world is a programmer in the world of film (laughs) how much time do you have i thought this was a fast Fast. film term you have five Uh, um, seconds done uh, okay uh it is a person who is in charge of curating and selecting the um the program for a film festival Right. Or you can have a programmer in a, a radio station, too, right? So, sure. So they <laughs> pick the music to play. Yeah. So a lot of times we say the word programmer and people think, oh, you guys get into a computer and work on it and program code. But no, in the world of media and the world of film festivals, a programmer picks content. That was the fastest possible definition of that. Fast. I'd like to introduce a new segment today. Uh, joining me in studio is Charlie Brown Sanders III, uh, one of my fellow Sidewalk feature film programmers. Uh, and he's launching a segment today called The Film Minute with Charlie Brown. Um, kick us off, Charlie. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Corey. Today, I'd like to talk to you guys about Ghostbusters. It's a film that everyone loves, I'm pretty sure. I know I love it, but um, I don't know if you guys know a couple of little small things about this movie that I'd like to point out. Like, for instance, the idea for the movie came from Dan Aykroyd, and the reason it came from Dan Aykroyd is because he stayed in this haunted house 
in Los Angeles that supposedly was haunted by Mama Cass <laughs> from the Mamas <laughs> and the Papas. So I don't know if you guys know that, but that occurred. And Aykroyd actually really does believe in ghosts. Um, his family, um, they conducted seances like through his childhood. And his father actually wrote a book called History of Ghosts. And it's about their family's involvement in spiritualism. So anyway, he was basically the driving force behind Ghostbusters. And it was completely different in the beginning because it had John Belushi and John Candy and Dan Aykroyd. But then John Belushi died and John Candy wanted his character to have schnauzers attached to him the whole time. So they were cut and, you know, obviously they had to recast and Dan Aykroyd reached out and recruited some members, Bill Murray, Harold Ramis, and director Ivan Reitman, actually, he found him. And so there was a rumor that Eddie Murphy was actually going to be in the movie. And so he was supposed to play Winston. He was supposed to have a bigger role. And then he turned it down. And they found Ernie Hudson and completely changed the role. So anyway, but that that's a rumor. But um, the studio's decision to greenlight this movie for $30 million budget was considered, quote, a horrendously expensive risk to be carried on the backs of former television actors and a relatively inexperienced director. Meanwhile, Bill Murray barely showed up on time or at all because no one could actually get a hold of the guy. So no one really knew if he was going to be on set or what. And so even though there was this awesome script and all of these awesome people, most of it was improv. I don't know if you knew that. But um, most of Bill Murray's lines were improv. The, the, the party scene where um, Louis Tully, played by Rick Moranis, is partying in his apartment. One shot, one take, improv. So anyway, they, um, you know, the film was scheduled for release in June of 84, but the shooting did not wrap until February. So there was only four months to do post work on this ghostbustering movie. And um, they did not meet that deadline. And so when that movie went to theaters, it went to the theaters without any special effects. And there were still wires hanging on the actors. And they were nominated for an Oscar for special effects. And another th- another another uh, piece of the movie that was nominated was the best original song by Ray Parker Jr., who actually wrote it at 430 in the morning the day it was due. And the only reason he was able to even record it was because he had his girlfriend and her friends hanging out at his apartment at the time. And his son is actually the one who said they should shout out the Ghostbusters part. Anyway, um, the film's original title was Ghost Smashers. And if that had happened, we would have never gotten the awesome line, Bustin' makes me feel good. So the movie was great, and it worked out well for pretty much everybody, except one person, the guy who played the EP. EPA bureaucrat character, Walter Peck, he was so hated by moviegoers that when he went out, often people would say, hey, Dickless. And that's why everybody hates the EPA. What's this shit? Yep. There's the song. You knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. Okay. Guess what? I'm at the gym. I'm on the treadmill. The tread. I'm I'm trying it. I'm trying. I'm on the the tread. tread. I'm on the tread. Does it sound cool? Um, Need to stop (laughs) trying to make fetch happen. (laughs) Oh, I can't. There's a train. There's a train. This is a really weird one because sometimes this happens, especially during programming season, where I'm getting very much in my head. Yeah. You know, it's, and I rec, I'm going to just go ahead and acknowledge that this is a very self indulgent, self important thing, but I'm acknowledging that like nobody else in the world gives a shit about this process, but I do. Okay. So just let me get that out of the way. And I really start going down a crazy road to the stupidest movie in the world. Okay. And, uh, and I don't know what this movie is, but I can tell you it's the stupidest movie in the world because there's trains. 
Um, it looks like maybe Denzel is in one is in like the conductor area yeah, of the train. Know what this is, okay, but well go let ahead. me just finish. Then is it Chris Pine falls yep. off the train and I'm like I'm sitting here looking at this going, we're just cutting into these sort of like zooming shots and there's a helicopter and there's all this cutting and it's it's parallel action. People are at home watching it on TV. And I'm like, man, this is boring. How can a like train, like whatever capture, save the people thing is happening? How can this be as boring as it freaking is? And I start going down this like, you're just, you can't wait to say it. So just go ahead and say it. I mean, I like this movie a lot. So I'm just kind of grimacing at your description of it. Uh, this is the last movie of the late, great Tony Scott, Unstoppable. It's, it's good. It's stupid. Um, starring Denzel Washington, his frequent star, uh, and Chris Pine. Uh, I like Tony Scott's fast edit, like quick zoom, handheld style. Um, it could be anything, though. Like, insert a shot of a cord. Insert a shot of a cloud. Ooh, what's that? It's a hand. It's a hand on a thing. And mm. also, like, Chris Pine's face is terrifying. I know some people would think it's handsome and fine, but I think it's horrible. And I also get him mixed up with all the other Chris's that have that same look. Anyway, this film isn't good. I'm sorry. <laughs> it it actually is. <laughs> Um, but anyway, I mean, and just we'll just counter this part of it, but I just let it suffice to say that I went down a really weird path of like, what does it mean to make an action film? What is this all about? What are we as human beings? Why do we, what happens in my brain when I'm told that I should be on the edge of my seat, but I can't get there? And then I do. And then I'm like, no, I don't care. And I leave the room and I get onto another piece of equipment at the gym. And it's all, it's a very nihilistic path I'm on no, here. No, that's, that's, just, that's just June as a film festival programmer is what that is. Everybody just heard me have a mini stroke <laughs> well thank you so much for listening our thanks in particular to Batwell Studios for hosting us and making us sound like we are reasonably coherent human beings like we're human beings period well, yeah that we have the capacity to speak um, it's difficult the, the sentence that I'm speaking right now has actually been assembled piece by piece oh man they spend like hundreds of cut uh, different cuts hundreds we, we never say a full sentence so just give your praise to them it's we really also, just syllables exactly and you can tell by this outro <laughs> so um we also have to thank splash 96 for our original music the music's Love it. great it's it so is good terrific absolutely terrific um and of course we are your own personal i'm going to give you one that's that only a handful of people are going to get and okay. maybe no millennials at all okay we're your own personal kelly and brenda yeah. Did you hear the crickets right there? Crickets. Whatever. <laughs> you like that? That's the soundtrack to 90210, bitch. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, visit so, us on uh, social media, at Sidewalk Film, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc., uh, to register your distaste for Rachel's 90210 references. Oh, please do. And also rate us. Just go on and do the little five-star thing on iTunes. We need that. And then guess what we have now? What do we have now? I mean, I think these things just kind of happen. I don't know. We have a sidewalk hashtag. We do? Well, I mean, specifically a side talk hashtag, and it's hashtag side talks. Yeah, that makes sense. So what I'm thinking on this particular hashtag side talk is for you to let us know what you think about Tarantino's smug little face. (laughs) So go on. Go on. Is that how that works? A hashtag side talks and give us a little note about Tarantino's smug little face. And how it's good, right? Bye. All right, bye. Batwell Studios Podcast Division. Your words, our expertise.